ACNF, Creative Nonfiction Podcast, greatest podcast in the world. Sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit coucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published. And Coucher's MFA for nonfiction. CNF is also brought to you by Bay Path University. Discover your story. Bay Path University is the first and only university to offer a no-residency, fully accredited MFA focusing exclusively on creative nonfiction. Attend full or part-time from anywhere in the world. In the Bay Path MFA, you'll find small online classes and a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master the techniques of good writing from acclaimed authors and editors, learn about publishing and teaching through professional internships, and complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation for your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, family histories, spiritual writing, and an optional week-long summer residency in Ireland. With guest writers including Andre Debus III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August, January, and May. Maybe May 2020. Hmm. Find out more at baypath.edu slash MFA. Go on. Look under your chairs. You get a riff. You get a riff. You get a riff. Welcome, welcome, CNFers. I'm Brendan O'Meara, and this is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast, where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I tease out oranges. That's another word, orange. I always want to say oranges. Tease out origins and get to the heart about how these CNFers go about the work so you can improve your game. Today's guest is Stephen Kurtz at S. Kurtz on Twitter, S-K-U-R-U-T-Z. He's a features writer for the New York Times, and he was the very, very first writer in creative nonfiction's amazing, and dare I say, its best product, True Story. It's called Fruitland. Amazing. I think it's online somewhere. I'm pretty sure you cannot get it in hard copy anymore, but it might be like a long reads feature. Link in show notes if it's available. In any case, you have that to look forward to. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. I mean, why wouldn't you? Go do that wherever you get your pods. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNFPod, and Instagram, also at CNFPod. This grows on the backs of your support. If you dig it, pass it along. And if you do, tag me in the show. I'll be sure to light you up with digital fist bumps and maybe an on-air shout-out like this. Thanks to Austin Pickens for supporting the show and reaching out on Twitter. It's fun having Metallica conversations. means a lot. I got to thinking the other day that I've got to strip things down to the bones. Now, bear with me as I go through this little diatribe. I've been caught in this trap of trying to do it all and do too many things. The 40-hour work week day job, the 20-hour a week or so podcast, well, that's like 
reading, research, production, promotion, etc. Freelancing stories and columns, trying my hand at some content marketing writing, flirting with the idea of doing some dog photography, writing a kid's sports book for girls. I mean, it's a mess. It's, it's Forget about the freaking memoir that I've been writing. It's no wonder nothing really gains traction or momentum. I suspect many of you might have the same problem. So once I'm done with some of my horse racing commitments and I'm done with this hippocamp talk that's giving me uh, anxiety up the wazoo, this is what I'm focusing on. The day job, because that's what keeps the lights on, and the podcast. I'm tabling the memoir, tabling all writing except my journaling, tabling all pipe dreams and shiny new ideas. This podcast is my squeaky Kong filled with delicious peanut butter. This podcast it needs needs to hit a new level and it needs all of my attention so I can deliver the best product to you and build what I hope is a ripe community. The other stuff will be there when it's ready. Kind of what got me thinking about this, like I just put a little thing out on Twitter that said like baseball is pretty much the only thing I've been ever really been good at and especially hitting. And I trust me, I'm I was never a natural. I'm not a natural. I was a good ball player because it was all I cared about. It was all I focused on. And I thought about my guys, Metallica. And you know how those guys and countless other thriving musicians make it, right? It's it's not because they're geniuses, though some are. And I don't think the gods, the metal gods, somehow found four geniuses then they happened to meet in the same place in the same time. No, it's because in their spare time, they played guitar for eight hours a day or more. And that's it. They went on tour in small clubs only so they could play maybe another small club and then they would get their reps. It was that singular vision that they all shared. And some bands make it and some writers make it and fill in the blank. But the commonality among anyone who makes it is that singular vision. And I wanted to share that because maybe we're only as far away from our dreams and goals as our focus or lack thereof. Now, I know you didn't ask for that little lecture, but it was on my mind, so I had to blurt it out. I understand there's a skip ahead or like 15 or 30 seconds on your podcast app. You can feel free to use it. Anyway, Steve Kurtz is here, Stephen Kurtz, and he's got a great story about how he became a writer and how he found his way to writing features for the best damn newspaper in the country. Before we get to him, though, I just want to give one more shout-out to River Teeth, the literary journal, for the promotional support. You boss. Okay, now, it's finally time for the show. Let's kick it. So this will be fun, and I know you've got a particularly... Uh, I always love charting how a writer becomes a writer, and especially when they have sort of, um, they don't necessarily have like a, the, a classic sort of literary background. It, you know, in an essay you wrote, you're like, your father preferred to work with his hands, and, and, when, and, and as you wrote in one essay, you said, my mother, when confronted with anything text-heavy, would raise a palm in resistance and say, I'm not a big reader. So I, I'd love to say, how did a reader and a writer come out of uh, that parental dynamic? You know, I, I don't know, other than it was it was a bit innate, I guess. You know, I've, I've been around enough writers and been a writer long enough. I think there's a writer disposition 
you know, uh, the writer disposition is somebody who is just more comfortable on the sidelines watching things. You just gravitate to, to that kind of role. You know, you're not necessarily the person who's just quickly participating, but you're sort of taking, you're always kind of looking at life in a, at a bit of a remove. I, I have that personality. And I think probably early on when I started reading books, I, I must have recognized that in, in the um, other authors. And, um, and also just the act of reading kind of takes you out of, you know, the sturm and drang of life and, and, and you're a bit on the sidelines and, and contemplative and, and thinking about things. But I have to say, in fairness to my mother, and I think maybe I put it in that essay, my mother was, and my father were big magazine subscribers. So there were a lot of magazines in my house growing up. You know, my dad was into trains, so there were train magazines, and my mother liked houses and architecture, so they were decorating magazines. But later on, when I got to New York and ended up working in magazines, you know, and doing a lot of magazine writing, it just somehow looking back on it, it was like, oh, this feels natural and this makes sense. I grew up in a house teeming with magazines and now I'm, you know, working in a magazine. I love how you how you came to the to the library and kind of revered the library growing up as a way to seek the outside world without actually having to outwardly engage with it as you can because you don't have the means or to get out into the world, but the books uh, specifically, like Cannery Row was very influential for you. So, like, how important was that? You know, like, take us to that your childhood library and how important that place was for you as you were developing that sort of writerly disposition, as you say. Um, I mean, it was huge, and I should just put this in some context. You know, in terms of where where I grew up, I, I grew up in a a, a very a small uh, fifteen hundred people. Uh, one stoplight town um, in central Pennsylvania, and it's not just a small town. It's a it's a very it's a small town plopped in, in the middle of thousands of acres of you know state forest preserves. So it's a very remote, insular place. You know, like the nearest bookstore was 50 miles away. The nearest record store was you know 30 or 40 miles away. The nearest mall, all that sort of stuff. And it's it's in the middle of the city, middle of the state. So it's three and a half hours to Pittsburgh and three and a half hours to Philadelphia. So you're not really around the city. So in that environment, and then also, you know, in an environment where very blue collar and um, there's not a, it's not a literary type environment. A, a place like the library was just hugely, uh, hugely important. And my mother uh, early on when I was little, it, you know, they had these children's reading classes and she enrolled me in those you know, I just sort of caught the bug and I spent a lot of time there. And it was the kind of place I, I wrote an essay about this library where, again, the te like wasn't like every, it was a big reading community. So I would go in there and you just have the place virtually to yourself. And it felt like it was your own library. Um, you know, you walked in and there was a on the left. If you went, there were two rooms. And then in the middle, there was the librarian's desk. On the left-hand side, the left room was a children's reading room. The right-hand side was the adult reading room. And, you know, when you were 12 or 13, you got to pass from the children's reading room to the adult reading room. You weren't allowed to go in there, you know, until you were a teenager. And so 
just that experience and just being in there completely alone. And I still, I still go back there, you know, my, my folks are there and I visit a lot and I enjoy going to the library. And again, it's just one, that adult room was just one room of books. It wasn't like you were going to find the deep cuts, you know what I mean? Or even more metropolitan, cosmopolitan writers like Philip Roth, you weren't likely to find that, but you would find the, the three classic books by Hemingway and, and uh, you know, The Great Gatsby by, by Fitzgerald and then, uh, you know, Shakespeare. It had all the kind of classics that you needed, you know, to get a one, maybe one Dostoevsky book. So you could get an education, a literary education that, that um, you know, by going there. At what point did you start to think that this was a vocation that you wanted to to take up? Well, when I got to college, I did major in English. I went to Penn State, the big state school, and there was some way the major worked where you could put an emphasis on something. So I had it. My emphasis was on fiction writing, creative writing. Uh, And I so I did it there. You know, I got some encouragement in high school from from an English teacher. And then I got some encouragement in college from a teacher but I was pretty directionless. You know, again, when you come from a, a, an environment where there are really not very, not very many people have ever gone to college and then gone out to the sort of professional world or, or been away to cities, uh, you know, and worked and lived there, it's all completely foreign. So I had no, I had no understanding of how to get a job as a writer or a magazine or or any of those things. So I really, after I graduated, I had this degree in English and I, and I kind of floundered because I didn't know how to make that transition from college life into the professional, you know, working world. What happened was I got a, I, I threw resumes everywhere. And by chance, I, I got an internship at Entertainment Weekly Magazine in New York City. And the internship paid $8 an hour. And that allowed me, I had a little bit of savings from working jobs in college that allowed me to move to New York. And, uh, and then suddenly, you know, I was made aware of this whole world of publishing and magazines and, and the, the career path. And I think that's really when things kicked in. Uh, before that, I sort of had these half-baked notions that I was going to play music or something, which I'm not very good at. You know, I would have, you know, would have been sort of disastrous. Once I got to New York, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't even know about the New Yorker magazine until I got to New York. And then when I got to New York and learned about these other magazines, you know, and a magazine like the New Yorker just became a Bible for me. And, and again, sort of like the library, it just opened up this entire world where it was like, oh, all these amazing writers that have published in here over the years. And, you know, I love the tone of the magazine and, and the level of, of quality and the book reviews and the, just the whole literary thing. And then kind of got the ambition to really do it, I would say a year or two after being in New York and, and um, you know, I've been doing it since. Who were some of the writers as you started picking up the New Yorker that you were reading, they were like, oh my God, like the, turn the world kind of black and white into color for you. Um. You know, I have to say, I mean, it really was the totality of the magazine, everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the short, the, you know, the talk of the towns, these quick 800 humorous 
you know, 800 word stories that are often funny um, or charming in some way, you know, to the features. But, you know, at that time, Susan Orlean, you know, was a big one and uh, Alec Wilkinson. Um, and then I went and got all these, you know, bought all these books that, that Alec Wilkinson had written and read those, Calvin Trillin, Tad Friend, and then, um, you know, learning more about the history of it, E.B. White and, you know, these other writers. I'm, I have, I'm looking at my bookshelf and I have that um, amazing book, um, Portrait of Hemingway, uh, that grew out of uh, a, um, a New Yorker by Lillian Ross, you know, so uh, it's a, a basically an extended New Yorker profile. Um, of Hemingway, um, and it's just incredible, you know, like they, these are John Hersey, uh, you know, Hiroshima, I mean, these, these books are just amazing, and these writers are amazing, and for a long time, um, you know, the New Yorker uh, really was, you know, I was I was getting an education through uh, through reading it. And and look looking at your bio, of course, you know you you write for New York Times, New York Times Magazine, features reporter, for, and for a lot of people who listen to the show, my, and myself included, like that to me is like such a a gold standard of a place to do the kind of writing you do, and a lot of the writing that just we desire and we read. When you look at that, it sometimes feels like to get there, you know, you are somehow anointed. And I know that's not true, and so you started at as the in intern at Entertainment Weekly, and I'd love to just maybe chart how you got to where you are today and some of those growing pains and early lessons you learned. So from Entertainment Weekly, how did you start building some momentum that ultimately would put you on the path where you are today? Uh, okay, so I was at Entertainment Weekly in, in uh, 99. I, I came to the city in the, in the winter of 99, and the internship lasted six months, and you know, I met some friends there and, and and um, got excited about magazines and, and, and just, you know, but even still, again, I had these half-baked notions. So I spent that summer of 99 interning in a recording studio, that, which was unpaid. And I, you know, got coffee for bands thinking maybe I would try to still couldn't decide music or magazines or, you know, or publishing. I didn't like working in a recording studio. Uh, I didn't like the environment. And I, so then I just started, I temped for over a year, a year and a half, maybe. I mm-hmm. temped in just various office um, offices in the city. Uh, you know, I don't know if temping is still the same robust industry as it, as it was at the time, but it was really fascinating, you know, uh, you'd be in one office for three days and then you'd be somewhere else and all over the city. And I did that. And at the same time I did that, I started freelancing. I placed a couple pieces in Salon uh, back then and, um, you know, a, a few small pieces in Entertainment Weekly magazine uh, based on the contacts that I had there. Um, and then eventually one of the editors that was at Entertainment Weekly went to Details Magazine, a, men, a men's magazine that's gone now that was kind of like GQ uh, or Esquire, and it was being revamped at the time. He reached out. I, I think he reached out, or maybe I pitched him a story, uh, and he said there was an opening. So it was an editorial assistant opening. Um, I got the job. So that was my first a full-time job. No, actually, it wasn't my first full-time job. Before that, 
I, I got fired from Time Out magazine. Uh, I got hired to be a music critic from for Time Out magazine, which at the time, Time Out magazine, it was like this place where if you were an up and coming writer, you did your you you worked in the trenches at Time Out, and then you eventually went to Time or the New York Times or some other place because it it was very fast paced and you you know you got to learn the ropes and learn the city. I flamed out after six weeks or something. It was just a terrible, a, a terrible fit, um, you know, between the, my boss and I, and, and um, I don't know. My I I didn't have. I really basically got fired because my my depth of indie rock knowledge wasn't really, really where it should have been. <laughs> and um, you know, I I remember specifically. I didn't know who some person named Momus was, and it was like you don't know Momus. That's it. You're out. <laughs> I still really don't. I don't. Twenty years later, I still don't know who Momus is. But, but uh, you know, it was it, it was devastating for me at the time to get this magazine job, and you know, and I'm flying by the seat of my pants in New York and stuff, and and still just sort of barely making it. And then now I'm now I'm unemployed again. You know, then I got the job at Details, and that was great. And that was the first job that allowed me to. I got, I travel, you know, travel for a story, you know, like you're, you're an editorial assistant, you know, you're doing some kind of secretarial managerial stuff, but then you're, you know, if there's extra things they need you to write, they write them. I got, they had this uh, column, a Q and a every month. I got the interview Elton John, you know, which was, was an amazing thing. And then I eventually took the column over and, and interviewed a big prominent um, older celebrity. The column was called Wise Guy. So I got to do that. I flew to Miami to re- report a story about a, a race car driver. You know, like it was, it was, it was a really, it was a really great experience. Uh, however, um, you know, you're right. Like the Times is the place. You know, if you know the New Yorker and the Times, these are really the the places to do amazing writing and, and the kind of writing I wanted to do at a magazine it's formatted, you know, you have like the, the, the celebrity on the cover that sells it. And then you have the various formatted type stories and each magazine has its own demographic that it's trying to appeal to. And if you, if you find a story that's outside that demographic, it really isn't a fit for the magazine. And I have always been a generalist. It was being limited by, okay, you've got to find sort of like the, the 25 to 35 year old guy who's doing something cool in some industry, you know, to, to, and write that story month after month. I just didn't, it was frustrating after a certain point. So I started freelancing for the times for this section called the city section that um, doesn't exist anymore, but it was very much like the New Yorker. It covered the city. It was a weekly in a very literary way, you know, it was like Joseph Mitchell, that kind of, mm. you know, that kind of writing where you roam the city and you write about interesting characters in different neighborhoods, started freelancing for them. And then a position opened up and then uh, I got the position. The position was not a, it was not a full-time staff position at the times. It was the city section had five or six, contract writers you got a certain amount every month so you did get a stable paycheck uh, but it was not an avenue into the paper it was a really amazing job my my job each of us had different neighborhoods around the city that we were assigned to cover and my neighborhood was manhattan below 14th street i mean it's just like the epicenter of cool 
uh, you know, for the city, for the country, you know, if not, if not the globe. And I was covering those neighborhoods, the East Village and the Lower East Side and Soho and all that stuff. So it was an amazing job, but it was not a, it was not an avenue into the paper. Um, and I know this answer is long winded, but I'll, no, I'll, great. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll wind it up, which is that, okay, so I, I did that job for three years, but I was getting close to 30 at the time and I had no health insurance. So I, I thought like, I can't continue to do this. So eventually after I, even though I love the times, you know, it was like dating a girl who's never going to marry you. You just, at some point you have to be like, okay, I know you're beautiful, but I, I have to, you know, I have to move on. And I ended up, I got a full-time job at the wall street journal and I was there for a couple of years, uh, covering, uh, arts and books and things like that. And I, I didn't expect it to ever happen, but a position opened up at the times and it was for a section, the home section that I had been freelancing for while I was doing city stuff and the editor knew me and I got the job. And then, you know, after a number of years of freelancing, basically for the times I became a, uh, a, a staffer at the times. And that was in 2011. That's amazing. I, I love that. It's like, you really, there was something that you really wanted here and the door wasn't necessarily open, but you, you know, you, you kind of kicked it open just enough so you could always be on the forefront of these people's minds. And you did, you did the work, you did good work so that when the time came, when there was an actual position that, that could hire you, it was like you had done the work and proven yourself and you, you ran with, you, you did what you could with what was offered to you at the time. And then it definitely paid off by, by 2011. So that just speaks to you, like your rigor and tenacity to kind of play the long game right yeah i mean it's 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 true i mean i don't know i didn't know if i was playing a long game at the time mm -hmm. like you know I, I was just probably in my 20s and and every, the world was new to me and being in new york but the rigor and tenacity is, is certainly true i mean I, you know it's probably cooler to say that you know i can pick up a story and report a story and open a laptop and just write it and it flows out. That's just not the case. But I, it, I, you know, I, that entire decade of my twenties was, was educating myself about good writing, trying to get better at writing myself, trying to get to venues that would allow me to do the writing that I really wanted to do and stories that I really wanted to do learning from lessons you know, mistakes I had made, um, just, just reading constantly, just, you know, just really falling in love with it. And, um, you know, yeah. And, and the city section, it was a weekly and you had to, you had to produce. And so there was nothing like the joy of, um, you know, and there still isn't anything like the joy of when you just reported a, a story and now you're sitting down to write it and, you know, like shaping it and sculpting it and all that sort of stuff. It, you know, I did, I, I did spend all those years and, and a lot of that time focused on really one thing only, and that was writing and getting better at it. When you were starting out there in that, in that turbulent decade uh, and you're writing and reporting, uh, what were shortcomings you noticed in your own skill set that you felt like you needed to really, you know, 
work and practice and research and you know and put in the put in the repetitions uh on the on the tee or like as a musician and someone who writes a lot about music you know learning your scales like what were some of the things that you were struggling with that you eventually got better through practice and repetition i th- i think i at the time i remember because i had started at, and i i did work at my college paper and that's what got me I, I, my senior year I worked at the college paper and that's what got me the internship at entertainment weekly. But at that time, you know, the, the college paper pieces were short entertainment weekly, you know, they're a feature story. Maybe it's like 2000 words at the most. And then you had all these little 150 word stories. And I loved doing them because they were, they were, they, they had to be as tight as haiku. I mean, you know, the magazine had a fleet of editors and copy editors so it's just because it's a 150 word story doesn't mean, you know, like you knocked it off. It, it, it was almost harder in some ways to write a 150 word story, but even time out was small. And then the city section, they had these things that were called neighborhood reports that were four or 500 words. And then if you did a cover story, maybe a cover story was 1,800, 2,000, all of which is to say the thing that in those years for me, was the difficult and challenging thing was length. I would just look at a New Yorker story or a New York Times magazine story that was five or six or 10,000 words and just be amazed. And it was all about, I don't know, it's like working up, for me it was at least, maybe some writers just start out writing long and big features. But for me, it was like working up to like, okay, you're hitting balls in the infield. And now you can get some balls into the outfield and then you're capable of hit putting a ball, you know, over the fence and home run. So like, you know, that was, that was the struggle for me of a 3,500 word story just seemed, you know, monumental um, to try to, to try to report and write and figuring out all that information and where does it go and how do you, you know, the amount of reporting that's involved in, writing a 10,000 word piece. Um, so that was something that, that, um, you know, it took me many, many years to be doing, you know, like Fruitland, the, which was a a true story for creative nonfiction. That was a 10,000 word piece. I haven't written many 10,000 word pieces. I did end up, I, I did write a book years ago, so you could say, yes, I, you know, wrote long, but even still, you know, to write that long and to do the depth of reporting, is still, I always kind of take a pause. It's like you're, you know, to use an, another metaphor, it's like you're climbing Everest or something, and you're like, okay, you know, one step at a time. Yeah, that's, uh, I think a lot of people, and I, I lump myself into this, you think that, you know, writing anywhere from five to 10,000 words is, it, it's a matter of just like squeezing the words out. But really, the, I think people maybe, undervalue might be the wrong word or they underestimate the amount of research and reporting goes into something of of that length and actually when you're writing five or ten thousand words it's like you've that's the shortest possible version of that story if you've done it well and the tight the mass of reporting you have to do people might not realize how much how much there is like did that surprise you like as you were trying to length write pieces of this nature like fruitland that the research and the reporting was like, like nothing you had ever done before. Uh, you know, yeah. It, especially early on, because I think, and you're totally, you're totally right. I mean, it, you know, I think what happens is that 
so you, when you're early on in writing, you wish you had more space. You're like, man, this is a, I have so much to say about this. If they just give me 5,000 words and, you know, I only have a thousand to say it, but you can't do a thousand, you can't do re- enough reporting for a thousand words and then try to stretch it into 5,000 words. Because what happens is as you're going along, it's, th- it's like, it feels really thin. You know what I mean? It's like you're making soup with no, with no hearty ingredients and you just got, this sort of this weak broth and early, and when you're really young as a writer and starting out, you think your voice is going to get you the other 4,000 words, you know, it's like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I can just riff. And some people can riff. Some people are good at riffing and they're stylists. I'm not one of those people. And so, yeah, I mean, you see a piece that's five or 10,000 words that reporter may have spent three or four months on it. Like they may have done enough reporting that really they could have written a book and it's a 10,000 word piece and not a book, but you know, and then when you get into books, which was my ambition for a long time and is still, you know, I've written one book. I hope, I hope I'll be able to write more. The amount of reporting that goes into a book is just like, you know, boxes and boxes full of reporting. And again, maybe there's someone who can just kind of riff a book out, you know, but for most people, and if you wanted to really have the heft that, that a great story has, um, you can't, you can't do that. You really have to do a lot of reporting. I know uh, a shortcoming that I've experienced the last few years that I'm trying to get over is that, that notion of, of style, you know, sometimes when you read someone of like a, David Foster Wallace or Chuck Klosterman or people of that nature who are so definitively strong on the page as a maybe an insecure and a developing writer you're you're like I want to do that I want to be like that I want to be recognizable at the first power chord like oh that is this band that is this writer um so of late for me it's been showing the restraint and let the story do the heavy lifting and and that's something I noticed with your work like you're it has such a nice um, a, a nice rhythm to it, like Fruitland reads so well, and you you know that you're laying your work at the feet of the story, and you're showing that narrative restraint and letting the story do the heavy lifting. Um, was that something you had to consciously learn over the years to kind of show that restraint and let the story do all the heavy lifting? Uh, well, yes and no, and I and again, I know, you you're totally right, and I know I know what you're saying. I mean, there are some books that are almost dangerous in terms of being influential because you fall in love so much with the writer's voice that you want, you want to do that. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you know, there was a, for me, there was this writer, Bruce J. Friedman, who was mainly a novelist in the sixties, contemporary of Philip Roth, sixties and seventies. But he also did nonfiction writing and, and this collection of his book uh, of his nonfiction came out in the late nineties, early two thousands, right when I, you know, soon after I got to New York and, and was discovering all this stuff, uh, it's called even the rhinos were nymphos. And he has, it's a little bit like Klosterman where he just has a really comic, fresh, unique take on things. It's very voicey. He can do really smart, you know, nuanced thoughts on things, but at the same time, tell a joke and that book was just like, it was dangerous for me because then I spent the next 
couple of years just trying to write Bruce J. Friedman stories, mm-hmm. you know. Even John Jeremiah Sullivan, that book right. Pulphead, which I absolutely love. I mean, I, I I take that book down off the shelf a lot. But I, I, you know, it's like if I took that book down off the shelf at 24, it would have been too powerful for me. Like <laughs> right. now, now I know to enjoy, to take certain things out of it, like structure and other things and, and leave certain things behind because he has a very singular, amazing fly off the page voice. And I don't have, I don't have that. But the other thing is that going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, the fact that I was so enamored with the New Yorker where the New Yorker has an institutional voice, but it like, Chuck Klosterman, you know, it wouldn't publish in the New Yorker. Um, maybe he has, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to assume things, but it just like, if Chuck Klosterman would have started his career at the New Yorker, he wouldn't have been Chuck Klosterman, you know, mm-hmm. it, because they would have beaten him down and kind of taken that voice away. So, but the New Yorker, one of the great things about it is that it's more about the story than about the voice. It has this kind of institutional voice. It's all, it's very, a lot of it, you know, is very understated. Susan Orlean, you know, is a pretty voicey writer and and she made a career at the New Yorker. So there are exceptions, but generally speaking, what you're really, what I learned to appreciate was the cleanness of the prose and the insight of the thinking of the writer that that that's what was venerated in those pieces and at that magazine and so then it it, it wasn't it, i wasn't a person who was screaming of like i have this very unique voice and i and 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 i have to get it out like i idolized reporters who were a little more in the background and and let their voice let the there's other ways that voice comes out too. I mean that's the other thing. It's like voice comes out in what you choose to write about. That's a big part of voice. Voice comes out in what you choose to say, what you don't say, how you structure a story. I wouldn't call John McPhee necessarily a hugely voicey writer. Um, or I mentioned that book Hiroshima by John Hersey. I mean. It's not a first-person piece. I don't know if he even appears in it, but you understand his 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 point of view, his morality, where he chose chooses to place the tension of the story. All of those things are voiced too, but they're just voiced in a subtler way that doesn't, you know, to to like you said, it's not like the the first power chord, and you know, you know immediately. I haven't heard that articulated that well before, that sometimes voice just comes through the subject matter that you're just really excited about. And McPhee is a perfect example. He's a hero of mine. He's why I love and write and try to sell narrative journalism pieces and write narrative journalism books. Uh, he likes really sort of on the surface kind of boring topics, but you wouldn't. there's no doubt that he is excited about it and even though he's a pretty understated writer, there's plenty of voice there that comes through the things he's very interested in, whether that's oranges, canoes, or lacrosse. And I, I, I love that. Like, how, how did you come to um, to recognize that as a as a 
something that is voicey, but not like pyrotechnically voicey, if that makes any sense. I don't know. I mean, I just uh, at some point over time, let, let me take that back. At a certain point after I've been doing this for a while, um, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years. So after I've been doing it for a while, either a friend of mine, a fellow writer, or, um, you know, occasionally an editor, someone would say, this feels like a story that you would do. Or I've read about this something, or, you know, sometimes happens to me, people are not, people that are not in journalism and writing aren't as byline focused as people that are in writing. So if it's just like your uncle who's reading the New York Times, you know, or your aunt or something, they're just reading the art, the article, and they're not really paying attention to who's writing it. So frequently what would happen is someone would be like, I read, it would be a close friend of mine or somebody, family member or something, and they'd be like, I read that piece in the Times. Oh, and then I realized afterwards you wrote it. And I was like, oh, of course you wrote that story. Because I, I didn't, wasn't conscious, but I just gravitate to certain subjects. And my spin on certain subjects is unique to me, just like your spin on a subject would be unique to you. So when you when you write long enough, and if you write in one place, like like I have with the New York Times, or you know you get an association with some place, then you other people may even recognize things about you that you don't realize. Oh, you do you notice that you often do these kinds of stories, or you like protagonists that are such and such, you know, or you like stories where this happens or whatever. Um, so I think it was probably a combination of people saying to me, that feels like your kind of story. And that's how I got Fruitland. A friend of mine heard about the album and said, you know, this feels like you, you should, you should pursue this and do something. So it's a combination of that and, and a combination of just my own realization of, okay, I'm not a pyrotechnic person here in terms of voice. But I can, I can bring put myself across the page in another way by the kinds of things you know. The world is is just vast, and and the and there's a vast amount of information, and how you filter it is is can be unique to you. What what you take in and what you choose to write about that that can be uh, your voice. Yeah, and with Fruitland, it was published as uh, Creative Nonfiction's very first true story imprint, which I, I, I do from the moment they release these things, I love them. I love that you can fit these things in your back pocket and mark them up and everything. I know. They're I so know. cool. And um, so you were, you were number one. You were batting lead off. I wonder how you, you know, as a writer and, and a writer of a certain uh, platform, of course, with, you know, being able to write for the Times or Times Magazine, how do you sometimes choose where something you want to write ultimately ends up being published? So, like, why was Fruitland a good fit, say, for a true story submission versus maybe trying to shoehorn it elsewhere? Well, I did try to shoehorn it <laughs> elsewhere. You know, I mean, full full disclosure. Yeah. I mean, that story that story is a little has a little bit of a, a unique backstory, which which is that I wrote it first. You know, because I'm at the Times, my first inclination with every story is it's a New York Times story. And also because the Times, unlike, you know, a magazine that has a specific demographic or a specific commercial market that they're going after, the Times is a great place for a generalist because there's the sports desk and the business desk and the magazine and styles and the book review 
and all these different components. So it's pretty much any story can fit somewhere within the times. So I was writing for the home section of the times at the time. And a, a really important thing in the late seventies in, in um, rural Washington, these two brothers, Donnie and Joe Emerson recorded an album, self-recorded an album on their, on their farm. And, you know, the album went nowhere, uh, you know, because they had no connections to the record industry and they were living in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it just sat in their basement and a few copies got out in the world. Uh, it just so happened that 30 years later, one of those copies, uh, a music blogger found it in kind of like a junk, you know, like a brick and brack shop in Spokane, Washington, and, and bought it and played it and fell in love with it. And it's a really amazing, unique album. And it just caught on in this underground world of people who were into what are called private press records, um, you know, self, self-recorded, self-released um, music. And it became a kind of minor sensation. And, you know, so- songs that are on that record have shown up in movie soundtracks and they've been covered by you know other artists and things now so and so but anyway you know and there's many many layers to the to the story that's kind of like the the quick version but you know place was really important to that album i mean you know the fact that they recorded in pretty much total cultural seclusion donnie and joe did not even have a record player in their farmhouse they didn't they never saw a concert they they had a radio and a tractor and they listened to the radio in the tractor and that that was it so the fact that place and home was so important to that it was like oh okay i can make this work as a home story and i did i wrote as much as i could at the time like 2500 words or something in the home section but the story you know there's just so much more there And I did, and I had to kind of shoehorn it a little bit to make, to play up this home angle and to make things work. And it just didn't sit with me. This was like an amazing, amazing story. And I did not feel that I hit it out of the park. And you don't get, you know, you get good stories, you know, you can get good stories, but to get this, like this, to get a story this rich, and then, you know, it doesn't come along that often. And then to feel like you sort of, you know, you didn't do it full justice. It just sort of ate at me. And I, I was like, all right, you know what? Uh, for my own satisfaction, I'm going to do the story the way I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I went, I went back out there. I spent more time on the farm, more time with Donnie and Joe. I did more reporting. And then things had happened in the course of that year with them because the album had got rediscovered and it brought up a lot of emotional ghosts for the family and for um, and for Donnie because you know he made this music as a teenager and a lot of things and a lot of water had gone under the bridge in all those years and then Donnie and Joe came to New York City and did this amazing live show you know which was a, a just an incredible experience so I had all this other material that I didn't have at the time I had reported it for the paper and so then I just I wrote a ten thousand word version. And 10,000 words is, it wasn't a 30,000 word story. It wasn't, you know, a 5,000 word story. It was a 10,000 word story. I didn't have any word restrictions, but when I ended up, when I finished it and when 
uh, Hattie Fletcher, the editor of True Story, and I were done with it. Like that's what it ended up being, and that was the right amount to tell that story with the the right way. Um, so that's how that happened. But in terms of like where I would, I mean, where it would go, or how do I choose where a story goes? I mean, 99% of the time for me, it's going in the New York Times, and the other writing I do personal on the side. Um, there aren't many places who are going to give you 10,000 words. You know, I mean, I, I, the magazine industry is imploded. A magazine like Esquire, maybe at one time, or Vanity Fair or something. And also, as great as Fruitland was as a story, it probably wasn't sexy enough for, for Vanity Fair. And I don't have connections at The New Yorker. And then also, it had been previously, I did do a version of the story for The New York Times. So, you know, no magazine would want to, they might say, okay, well, we don't want to take this because a version of this is already out, even though the two versions are just night, they're completely different. But so in that case, it was like, okay, where, who's printing 10,000 word stories still? And, and it was, you know, literary magazines. And so I sent it to creative nonfiction. Things just happened to work out. They were launching true story and and these true stories, as you say, they're really incredible. I mean, it's like a mini magazine. You're right. It's like it's portable. You know, it's not on online. I mean, you can get it as a digital download, but it it's kind of like it's a hearkening back to print. It reminds me of you know those paperback books that you know GI. You know, they sold the GIs in the 1940s and 50s or something. It's you know it really um, respects print. And that that idea of sitting down with something, so it worked out. It you know worked out really well. But in most cases, I would say it's it's uh, literary magazines are the places to do to do long form writing like that. Mm. Do you think Fruitland connected with you on an almost visceral level uh, because of the place and the setting? given that you kind of grew up in a very small remote town and then these guys of course you know grew up in a small remote remote town uh do you think that connection uh really um sort of expressed itself and why you were so interested in the story in the first place uh um yes I, I, absolutely but i didn't know that at the time i think i i going back to what we were talking about before about the kind of topics you choose as a voice i often write about underdogs underdog stories and that you know underdog can be a very broad kind of thing you know but i'm just drawn to those kind of stories so initially the reason a friend of mine said this sounds like something you'd be into you know and the other thing i write about i tend to write about is the, the past and how how to kind of reconcile the past with the present and um matters of nostalgia and, and, and matters of things kind of fading away and dying as new things as, as the world moves forward. You know, I've been doing a lot of that at the times lately, for example, you know, the retail world is imploding. And, and then I went and did a story in Philadelphia about this place. That's the last great um, men's clothing store d- department store in America um, called Boyd's. And that's that's just my kind of story because they're underdogs. Like the the world's crumbling around them, but they're they're still they're finding some way to hold on and to and to thrive in this changing landscape. Um, and they have to figure out how to uh, how to bring the past into future. So those kinds of things 
initially interested me about about Fruitland, and that's why a friend suggested to me. It wasn't until I got out there and and went to Fruitland, Washington, and met the Emersons and saw how remote and what kind of cultural isolation they had lived in that, to your point, it resonated on a really deep level because of where I grew up and, and my own kind of cultural education and trying to you know, when you grow up in a place like that, it's just like that world is so far from you. It's so far removed. And there, you know, I live in cultural abundance now in New York City. And you're talking about you may never, no band is ever coming any like within 100 miles of uh, your 200 miles of your town. And there, there is no bookstore. There is nothing like that. So you have to, you have to find, you have to figure out where you're going to get it. You become really kind of like when you do you become like a miner for gold and when you do find it it's really it's all that much more powerful and and it's like oh my god like there's this place you know and they've got like records you know what i mean it's like, this is incredible i didn't think i'd find you know this book in this out of the way location that sort of thing so and donnie all he had was the Lawrence Welk show on television. And, and he was telling me about like, you know, you'll think this is corny, but the, I asked him, I was like, well, what, you, what were your influences if you didn't have a record player and stuff? He was like, I watched Lawrence Welk on TV. He was like the squarest person in America you could even think of, but it was a musician on television and he, and, and they were playing music and he and was coming into his living room in the middle of nowhere. Those were the things that I, I really responded to, um, you know, once, once I got out there and spent, and spent time with him. So for Donnie, just like the other issues about trying to resolve the past and figuring out what part of the past you, you take with you to your present day life. He was struggling a lot with that when there was all this attention put on this album that he had done when he was 16 years old and now he's a 50 year old man and very far removed from that time and place. And in your own work and over the course of your career, oftentimes, especially as you're developing and trying to get a toehold, sometimes you, 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 you start playing the, the comparison games and the comparison Olympics and you look over your shoulder and sometimes you wonder how so-and-so did this, you know, I feel like I'm every bit as good as this person and I, I'm like kind of in the mud and they're up here. So I wonder like how maybe you've processed feelings of competition or, or jealousy over the course of your career and maybe channeled that into a more productive way of moving so you can kind of get the work done and do the wonderful work you've been able to do for going on two decades. You know, yeah, I think that I think I had those feelings more so when I was in my 20s, really yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Is it just you know youth or or ambition or what? I had more of those. I think um, okay, uh, like I you know I I did this book years ago, like that came out in two thousand eight on tribute bands. I followed around this Rolling Stones tribute band, and so my thing was always like I want to write a book so bad, and look at this person, they got a book deal. And I didn't get a book deal and that sort of thing. And then I wrote a book and the book came out and I was very happy with it. 
but it didn't change my life. You know what I mean? Like there was someone else then who had written three books right. or someone else was on, someone else was on to their next book. So you look at those things and you realize that at a certain point, and also we're talking at a time, we're talking at a time when the industry is like, frankly, just like imploded. So that kind of stuff, like when I first came up in the late nineties and early two thousands, you know, it was like, well, you work at time, but the people who work at Condé Nast are like higher up on the totem pole than the time people. And, but, but the New York times, you know, it's like all, there was all this, like, where are you on the ladder? Where are you on the totem pole? And it's like, Oh, this author got, you know, this $500,000 advance and this, this happened. And it's like, we're all now in an industry where you're just fighting to live. You're just fighting to hold on and magazines have closed and other magazines are just sort of shells of themselves. And maybe they're still giving out huge book advances occasionally, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. And so it's not really even about that. You realize at a certain point, it's about the work. The only thing that's going to give you the sense of satisfaction is if you told the story you wanted to tell and you did it the best way you could and you're satisfied with the result, I really, you know, the satisfaction comes, you know, truthfully in seeing it in print. And yes, you want to see it in a place that prestigious or gets the most eyeballs or whatever, but really it, it's just about it existing and it existing. That's the satisfaction because you can't, you're, there's not monetary, you know, you're not going to get rich off of it. The great majority of people aren't even people who've published 10 or 20 books, you know, maybe they have problems publishing the 21st or whatever, all that kind of stuff is really just noise. And it takes you away from the task at hand and the task at hand is finding a good story and being present and telling that story and then finding a good home for that story. And then, learning from that experience and moving on to the next story. Nice, huh? He's at S Kurtz on Twitter, S-K-U-R-U-T-Z. My volunteer editor said she couldn't find much to cut from this episode, so that's a testament to a killer guest, am I right? Keep the conversation going on Twitter. Tag me and the show at CNFPod. We'll get the band back together, man. Also, consider leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Mission 100 is still in effect. Let's get there. Let's get there, CNFers. Thanks to Goucher's MFA in nonfiction, Bay Path University's MFA in creative nonfiction, and River Teeth for the support. Thanks also to Laura Tillman, who edited the interview portion of the show. Big ups. Could that possibly be it? Like I'm forgetting something, like nobody's business. Oh well. Remember, if you can do, interview. See ya.